Please take your Bibles again this evening and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And I'll read verses 10 through 18 as I did this. Well, I think I read 10 through 20 this morning, but this evening I'll read verses 10 through 18. We have the words of the Apostle Paul, beginning at Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." So let's once again look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of his word this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we especially thank you for these pieces of armor that we read about here in Ephesians chapter 6. Help us to understand what Paul is saying to us here Help us to understand what your Spirit is saying to us here in this passage, and help us to take these things to heart and learn all about this armor and put on each piece and use it in the midst of this spiritual battle in which you have placed us, your people. Hear our prayers and receive our thanks and help us now as we look to you, because we believe, as Scripture says, our help is in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned this morning as I began preaching from Ephesians six fourteen through 18, that's my text today and will be my text for another few weeks as we look at the spiritual armor that is listed here in this passage. I mentioned that um, this was a text that formed the basis for the teaching that went on in the recent basketball camp that was had for the young men here at TBC. And I mentioned that Pastor Khan had preached the original uh, initial message for that basketball camp on Sunday evening back in it was June. 
And I gave you the three um, headings for his message from verses 10 to 13 on that first night. I'll just review those for you briefly. There was the call to battle, verse 10, 11a, and 13a. We are to take up the whole armor of God because we are in a war, a spiritual battle. Second, we saw the enemy exposed. In verses 11b to 12, the enemy especially is the devil, but also all the hosts of spiritual powers that are amassed along with him. And then we saw the third thing on that Sunday evening, the victory assured, the last part of verse 11, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil if we use this armor. As God directs us, we will be able to stand. Our victory is assured. And likewise in verse 13, the last part of the verse, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And we began with verse 14. This morning it was just a repetition really of that point of standing. Um, stand, therefore. Uh, the, that's the admonition to stand. We are to stand ground. We are to resist the devil. The commandment is not to advance, though hopefully we do that in our Christian life. Hopefully we do that in our labors to see the kingdom of God expand. But the command here is just to stand. And in line with that command... An admonition from the Apostle Paul, I noted that most of this armor is defensive so that we can hold our ground when we are attacked by the wicked one. Tonight we come to what could be called the panoply. I have one Bible that I looked at this past week that uh, gives that heading for verses uh, it may be verses 10 and following or verses 14 and following, just the panoply. Panoply is just, uh, it's the Greek word transliterated into English for the complete armor. So it's a word for armor, but it means all the armor, the whole suit of armor. And my uh, computer document, that's the title of these, these, these sermons, the panoply. But I'm not planning to uh, use that word when I speak, but I'm just letting you know. So we'll start out for this evening then, or we'll have one main point as we can start considering the different pieces of armor. And as we do that, I am going to be ambitious for this evening, and you might say foolish for various reasons, but here's what I have on the docket for the rest of the time tonight. The belt, the breastplate, the shoes, and the helmet. And there's a method to my madness, and I'll explain what that is as we go along. But let's, let me just read those texts then, the relevant text. After it says in verse 14, stand therefore, then it says, and here's the first part of the armor, having girded your waist with truth, that's the belt, Second, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Then third, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
and then down to verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Maybe I won't get through all three of these. It won't be a problem if I don't. But I'm grouping them together for a reason. And I treat these all together. And I'm doing it first, not because just because um, the first three there come first, but I jump down also to the helmet of salvation. And it's for this reason. There's an important emphasis that we shouldn't miss here. And I think it's fair to say that when we look at these four pieces of armor, there is overlap. The belt, the breastplate, the shoes, and the helmet. It may seem strange that I would preach one message on four pieces of armor, especially when they are arguably the most significant pieces of armor in this complete armor that Paul lays out here for us. And the thing that you should notice about each of these pieces is that each one of these, when we talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, and then the helmet of salvation. Think of each one of those things. Um, truth, righteousness, the gospel, and salvation. Each one of these things, when we think of the Christian life, is a fundamental, comprehensive key gospel topic, we could say. A, a key gospel theme or idea, particularly as they relate to the subject of our salvation. This is the ultimate goal in this battle, that we stand so that in the end, we don't, we're not overcome by the devil, and that in the end, we're saved, right? That's the main goal here. So, for example, um, think of the gospel, the, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, verse 15. Basically, the weapon is the gospel, or the piece of armor is the gospel. The gospel is what? It's the message of salvation. And especially if we think biblically, we, think, we can think of some New Testament passages where it says the gospel was preached in the Old Testament. Think of um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that announcement from God that came to the serpent in the garden. And he said that uh, you, will, um, you will bite the heel of the seed of the woman but he will crush your head. Well, there was good news proclaimed there. My point, though, is that the gospel, in a sense, is the message of the whole Bible. So these pieces of armor are very fundamental pieces of armor. They, they convey very comprehensive realities about our salvation. Truth is a word like that as well. Righteousness is a word like that. Think of the way that um, this word righteousness has been used in the book of Romans so far as we've been going through. It starts out in Romans chapter 117. We reviewed this this morning. And it talks about, uh, well, let me just turn back there. Romans 1 and verse 17. 
It says, for in the gospel, verse 16 said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Interesting that in verse 16, you have the word gospel, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and you also have the word salvation used, the helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6, and then verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed. So righteousness, again, is a very comprehensive idea when it comes to the salvation of God's people. The whole book of Romans, in a sense, is um, an exposition of this statement that the righteousness of God is revealed. And chapter 3 and verse 21, another very significant text in the book of Romans, that's where Paul begins to explain the whole gospel. And he says in Romans 3.21, but now, after he shows the universal sinfulness of mankind, then he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, it was taught about in the Old Testament, and now this is what the gospel is all about, the righteousness of God. This is what our salvation is, if we use that word righteousness. Think justification, that we are justified through faith in Christ, and we're made, we're given the righteousness of Christ, we're given that breastplate of righteousness to protect us from the, the darts of the wicked one. These are huge gospel concepts. And I wanted to point that out when we think of these four pieces of armor. This is, these are fundamental, comprehensive gospel topics or themes. And that's why I'm making this effort to treat them all together here. And as we then think of how do we use this armor, when you think of these topics, the emphasis is more on knowing and understanding those realities than on doing, so to speak. I mean, Paul says we have to take up this armor, we have to put it on, but I think the emphasis is more on what we know and then that we understand those things and that we make sure to live in the light of them because we are convinced that they are God's truth. And if we do that, brethren, if we understand the gospel, understand what the Bible teaches about righteousness, especially if we think of the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to the believer, if we understand the truth, very comprehensive term, and then if we understand, what was the other thing I left out? The gospel, this, our, salva our great salvation. If we understand those things and we live in the light of those realities and we are convinced of those realities, then when we think of this spiritual battle that we are in, Satan is so overmatched. It is unthinkable that he could triumph over us as God's people. Um, this is a 
illustration that goes way back to my youth. Maybe these things are um, still in vogue because I know that, um, what do you call those things? Uh, superhero movies are still in vogue. The last superhero stuff I ever saw was Batman and uh, Superman when I was a pre-teenager, just being honest. But so one of the things that I remember from those days was a force field. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. But whoever the superhero was, if someone was shooting at him, if someone was trying to throw something at him, if someone was trying to hit him, or just come and grab him, if he could put up this force field, there was nothing they could do. And that's the idea about this armor here. These are such huge weapons that if we use these, I shouldn't say weapons, armor, such significant armor, that it's, not, it's stuff that the wicked one cannot penetrate. However many, however speedy they come at us, however fiery the darts of the devil are, they cannot penetrate this armor. And so the main practical application of each one of these pieces of armor, the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, and the helmet is that we should understand these great realities that are idealized in these pieces of armor, and then we should be confident. This is the practical application. We should be confident in this armor. Not only that the armor is good, and it's more than adequate for this battle that we are in, but then that gives us confidence as children of God that we will be victorious in the end and we will not be overcome by the devil. So that's the main message that we will have tonight. That's the uh, reason that I've grouped these four things together. And let me just start then, and I'll just go as far as I can get this evening, keeping my eye on the clock here. We'll start out then with the belt of truth, the last part of verse 14. Stand therefore, first of all, here's the first piece of armor, having girded your waist with truth. So when it, it's, it's using the, a verb there, gird your waist. Some of you know that the word girdle in Old English is the same as our more modern word belt. So that's the idea. That's why I use the language belt of truth. You don't see the word belt there, at least not in my version, the New King James. But it says, having girded your waist with truth. So the piece of armor is a belt. And the belt would be included as armor or part of the complete armor that a soldier would wear in the first century. Maybe Paul especially has in mind Roman soldiers. Uh, they were ubiquitous in the first century because there was the Roman Empire. So the people in Israel saw Roman soldiers. Remember, Roman soldiers came out to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. And um, Jesus would refer to the Roman soldiers in the Sermon on the Mount as uh, when, he, when um, 
he talked about the fact that if you're required to go one mile, that means if a Roman soldier comes up to you and conscripts you and tells you, you need to carry this for me, he was limited to one mile, pressing you into service for that only. So a belt was a, was a part of the weaponry or the armor. Let's just go back for a moment to 1 Samuel 8, 18 and verse 4 and just notice that. This is obviously not the first century, but it's ancient armor. 1 Samuel 18, 4. This is about Jonathan and David. And this is when um, David and Jonathan were speaking together. And this was after David had defeated Goliath. And just breaking into the context here, we read in verse 4, well, I'll back up to verse 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan, that was the son of Saul the king, took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So the belt was a part of the armor. In that case, probably the sword at least would be hanging from the belt. Maybe there was some way in which the, um, the, um, the bow was also attached to the belt. It would carry other pieces of uh, armor or weaponry. Uh, also, there's this reality that a belt was used uh, to gird up the loins. You're familiar with that language in the Bible? Gird up the loins of your minds we have in 1 Peter 1.13. Well, that, that means take your belt... And if they had the longer robes that would impede them from being able to run and move about easily, you tuck it into your, you'd pull up the part from the middle of your, between your legs, and you would stuff it into your belt, and then you have a pair of shorts, as it were. All right? That's the idea. You're ready for battle. You gird up the loins, and so you're ready to fight. Right? That's the idea of the belt here. And here, Paul calls it the belt of truth. Now, as I said, that's a huge concept. So when I think of truth, I think of things like God himself, the living and the true God. He is the definition of what is true, that everything else is measured by. When I hear the word truth, I think of God's truth. I think of the truth of the Word of God. In other words, it is a comprehensive idea. What is true is what is right and good. What is true is what is of God. And we could look at it this way as well, since we're talking about salvation. What is true, or what is truth, is what is saving. The truth saves us. Let's just look at one New Testament passage here. It's 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 14. Here's where Paul is talking about the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm reading the passage, though, because of its frequent mention of the, of the truth and it's interesting that it comes in this passage where it speaks about the lawless one and the working of Satan. 
It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The truth is what saves us. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, the truth saves. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as I said, it's a very comprehensive idea, truth. And I'm not going to try to get much more specific than I have, but we could say it's truth that is of God. It is truth that saves. One of the ways we like to use the word truth, we talk about Christians needing to be grounded in the truth. Now think of that in terms of having a belt of truth. We need to have the truth girt about our midsection. And we need to have it fastened, and we need to have it tightened, and then we will be grounded in the truth. What is the idea there when we say we will be grounded in the truth? Well, the idea is it will give us spiritual stability. It will give us balance. We won't be wobbly in our faith. We won't be unsure. Won't be unsure about what we believe. Won't be unsure about where we stand. Won't be unsure about whose we are. If we are girded about with the belt of truth, we will know what God's Word says. We will know what it teaches. We will know what it says about life and salvation. We need to know what the truth is. We have to go beyond that, of course, because remember, uh, it says in uh, James 2.19 that the demons know what the truth is. They know what the truth is. So we need to go beyond just knowledge of the truth, but we have to um, know what it is. We need to be, in a sense, we could say, wrapped up by the truth, like you are with a belt, you gird it around yourself. Maybe the belt also had something to do with strapping on the breastplate. I'm not sure of that, but maybe that's part of it. But if you don't have your belt on, you won't have all of your armor on. And there are a number of other pieces of armor that are dependent on the belt being on and being fastened and being tightened. So we need to be covered by the truth. There's a sense in which you could look at that as being as a way of saying that someone is saved. And I think all of these pieces of armor can be used that way. We have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the shoes of the gospel of peace. We need to be covered by the truth. And then here's another emphasis that I think we have with this point of the belt of truth. That is, if you have the belt of truth on, that means you have embraced the truth as your own. 
the commentator John Eady wrote these words. He says, to have on the belt of truth is to have the assured conviction that you believe and that it is God's truth that you believe. This sincere persuasion binds tightly the other pieces of armor. Think of it this way. This was a, a song that I remember from my er, early and younger years as a Christian. And it was just a very simple little ditty. But it went like this. And I never really liked it, but now I'm quoting it in the sermon. So It said, God said it. I believe it. And that settles it for me. And I would always, whenever I would hear that, would say, no, it should just be like this. God said it, that settles it. Whether I believe it or not, if it's God's word, if it's God's truth, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. But, but the commentator here, John Eady, is making this point is that if we have the belt of truth fastened around our waist, it doesn't just mean we understand what the truth is. It means we have taken it as our own. So again, to use another phrase that I strongly dislike, more modern one, people talk about your truth. All right, you tell them you're a Christian. You might give a little bit of your testimony. They listen patiently. They're not really impressed by the fact that you're a Christian or your testimony. But they say, well, that's great. That's your truth. In other words, it's what you believe. It's what you like. It's the way you want to live. It's not the truth because there's no such thing. But you have your truth and I have my truth. But this is the truth. And the point is that this is what saves and as a Christian, you not only know it, but you have taken it as yours. You've taken it as your belt, and you've fastened it around your waist. And you have other armor hanging on it or fastened in by it. Kind of like um, another chorus that I've quoted many times in sermons, I think, over the years. It goes like this. If you've, if you've, if you've fastened the belt of truth around your waist, I think it's like the chorus that says... I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Confidence. Confidence in the gospel, confidence in your Savior, confidence that whatever everybody else says about their truth, there's only one truth. And you've bought into it, and you've put it on as your armor, and you are now all in. And if you are in that way, girded with the truth, you are ready to run into the battle. Because your, your belt is fastened, it's tightened. As you run into the battle, your armor will not be banging around. Your sword will not be swinging back and forth and cutting into your thighs as you run. It won't prevent you from being able to run on the battlefield and to fight Again, think of the way David spoke about Saul's armor. I've not tested it. In other words, it's cumbersome to me. 
And here the idea would be this. If you don't have your belt of truth fastened on, you're not ready to do battle. You're unsure of yourself. You don't know the truth, maybe, or you're not all in with the truth. But the picture of the belt of truth being fastened is that picture. You're a soldier ready to fight. You're like, um, I can't remember his name right now, the guy on the lentil field. Was it Shammah? I can't remember right now. Oh, no, yeah, it was Shammah, maybe, the son of Agi or something like that. He had his belt tightened. And he was ready to fight and stand his ground, and he did. And then similarly, think of the breastplate of righteousness. That's the next thing. Again, it's another objective thing. God's truth is God's truth, whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you have taken it as your own or not. But if you have put on the belt of truth, you not only understand it, you're convinced of the truth of it, but you've taken it as your own. Well, think of the breastplate of righteousness. It's another objective, a great objective gospel reality, if you will. And the breastplate of righteousness obviously is referring to Christ's righteousness, as we've been learning about in Romans, especially in Romans 3, but also in 4 and 5 and so on. You have it in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, that this is the righteousness that is given to us. Christ takes our sin and suffers for it. And then Christ gives us his own righteousness. The righteousness of God, perfect righteousness. That's our breastplate. So the Roman breastplate would be uh, made of leather and then it would be overlaid with metal. And it could stop swords, it could stop arrows, things like that. That's the breastplate. Christ's righteousness will protect you. The, um, the shield that we're going to look at later is going to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. This will also protect you from the fiery darts of the evil one, we could say. We'll look next week, God willing, at another aspect of the breastplate of righteousness. So this isn't all I'll say. But think of it this way, brethren. Think of a believer who is in fear of the coming judgment. One of the things I preached on in Romans chapter 2, because it was in the chapter, was judgment according to works. Now to some Christians, people who are true Christians, who are well-instructed Christians even to some degree, they hear of judgment according to works and they immediately start to get uh, fearful because they think to themselves, if I'm going to be judged by works, it's not going to go well. And they don't live looking forward to the day of judgment. They live in dread of the day of judgment. And no Christian should be in dread of the day of judgment. Find one New Testament passage that talks about Christians who are dreading the day of the return of Jesus. There's not one. And every passage that talks about the Christian's disposition to the return of Jesus Christ talks about a disposition of longing, a disposition of expectation and of hope. 
And so the breastplate of righteousness, the fact that we are covered with the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a protective shield for our most vulnerable part of our body should mean everything to us. And you should, it should even be such that makes you think, if I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus, I don't need to be afraid of judgment according to works. I'll read a part of a quote of Edwards that I've read a few times before, I know, in this pulpit. Let me read it again. This is why you don't need to fear in the day of judgment. It's because of that breastplate of righteousness that you as a Christian have. Edward said this about the day of judgment. In that day, he says, the good works of the saints will also be brought forth as evidences of their sincerity and of their interest in the righteousness of Christ. Got that? What works of yours as a Christian will be brought up in the day of judgment? Those. Oh, but I don't have such good works. Do you ever give a cup of water to a righteous man just because he is a righteous man? Somebody does that for me every Sunday. Whatever he thinks of himself is not measuring up to the standard of God's Word. There's this. And Edwards is saying that's what will be brought up in the day of judgment. And then he says this. The judge himself will have taken the guilt of their sins upon him. Talking about the cross. Therefore, their sins will not stand against them in the book of God's remembrance the account of them will appear to have been canceled before that time. So let me just ask this simple question. Do you, Christian, need to be afraid that you will be judged by works, according to works, I should say, in the day of judgment? No. This is the breastplate of righteousness, if you will. Let's just... Look at Revelation 12 for a moment. Revelation 12 and verse 10. Here's where the evil one comes in. Then I heard a loud voice saying, saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. What's this, is, what's this talking about? The second coming of Christ. The great day, which is the day of judgment. This is what John saw in his vision. This is what he heard in heaven. Salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. I don't know what part, if any, the accuser of the brethren will actually have in the day of judgment. But if there is any, it will be this. 
He will be accusing the saints. To whatever degree he is able, he will be doing it with all his might. But it's saying here, in that day, he will be cast out. He will be shut up. He will be sent to the lake of fire. So maybe that will precede the, the judgment of the saints. I don't know exactly how it will work. But my point is this. His accusations will not work. And the breastplate of righteousness is something that you have not in the day of judgment only. You have it now, Christian. So when the accuser comes to you and he fires these darts of accusation at you, remember you have a breastplate. Turn back to 1 John 2 for a moment. This is how this works, I think. 1 John chapter 2 and verses, verse 1. My little children... These things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and that's what you say is your problem. Well, pastor, you don't know how much I sin. I know it. I don't want to know. But I know how much I sin. And so, though I strive not to sin, as John says, these things I write to you that you may not sin, that you are constantly aiming not to sin at all. That's what a Christian does. But then he says, and if anyone sins, we, we could understand that as when anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So when Satan comes with all his accusations, you have an advocate with the Father who stops the mouth of the wicked one. And the way it should work is, gives you peace in your conscience. Gives you a good conscience. Helps you to keep fighting the battle and not being overcome with discouragement and distress. The breastplate of righteousness. Think of everything we're learning in Romans 3 and then Romans 4 and now Romans 5 with much more to come, brethren, about our breastplate of righteousness. Let me turn you to one other text which I find so encouraging. Micah 7, verses 8 to 10. Micah 7, verses 8 to 10. One of my favorite passages. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, Micah starts out. In other words, it's kind of like we had in Habakkuk. Difficult times for God's people. The enemy seems to be winning. Micah has some revelation from God about the fact that though the times are difficult, it's all right. I don't, I'm not saying he understood what the breastplate of righteousness is the way we do but it's along those lines. So he's able to say, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. And you can say that as a Christian. 
When the devil is trying to take your sinfulness, your repeated falls into sin, that grieve you so as a Christian, and you can say, do not rejoice over me, my enemy, as you wage that spiritual battle and as he fires his fiery darts. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see His righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she, that is the, the enemy, now she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. If you understand that you have a breastplate of righteousness and you have put it on and you are wearing it, though the devil come at you with, from every direction with his onslaughts and his darts and his arrows... You will be safe, and you will be able to stand, and you will be able to stand with boldness and say, like Micah did, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. It may seem some days like you're winning, but you are in a losing battle because I have the breastplate of righteousness. And then the next thing, the preparation of the gospel of peace. I mentioned that when we come to the breastplate of righteousness, I want to look at another um, side of that breastplate next week, God willing, or maybe it'll be the next now. But then similarly, with the, with the preparation of the gospel of peace, some think of that as um, the preaching of the gospel. And so this is one of our weapons that we preach the gospel. And I think that's true. I'm not convinced that's what Paul is especially talking about here, um, but there's enough legitimacy to it that I think I'm going to preach a separate message on it. I wasn't convinced of that when I was preaching in the basketball camp, but um, I, I, I'm more and more convinced of it now. But I think the main emphasis, is, as I've been saying, is he's talking about the gospel here itself and the fact that we believe the gospel and we understand the gospel and we own the gospel and we live in light of the gospel. Go back with me to Romans 5 for a moment where we have similar language. It's not talking about the gospel of peace per se, but notice how it says there, therefore having been justified by faith, we could put it this way, having heard the gospel and believed it, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel comes, and if we believe and embrace the gospel, we have peace. I think that's Paul's main emphasis here. So there's a sense in which um, these shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, and the way shoes work as a piece of armor um, kind of goes like this. Imagine yourself being a Roman soldier or a soldier of the 21st century and whatever your armor is, 
you either have the armor of the Roman soldier or the armor of the U.S. Marine Corps or the army, like I said this morning. In other words, you have the best there is in your world. It's it's state-of-the-art armor, all right? And you, you wouldn't probably even list shoes as part of that armor. But now think of yourself as having all that armor and you're going out to battle. Oh, and there's just one thing you don't have. Shoes. But you would say, well, that's not really a significant piece of armor. I think in that moment, it would dawn on you how significant it is. All right? So I'll just leave it there. As a soldier, you need to move around and uh, you need to not get your feet cut and not get your feet stuck and not break your toe and all that kind of thing. Preparation, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. And as I said, some of the things then that apply here, I think are things we've been seeing in Romans chapter 5. Some of those things I said about if you have the gospel and you believe it, if you have a faith in Jesus Christ, then you have peace with God that comes from the gospel. That's the peace he's talking about. Think of the last time we were in Romans 5, verses 9 through 11. More than, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Justification by the blood of Christ. What's that? That's the message of the gospel. What is the, the fact of final salvation in the last day? That's the message of the gospel for God's people. If we believe that, if we understand it, what does it give us? It gives us peace. And I was thinking about this point as I was listening to the Sunday school lesson this morning. And I went back and I got one of the statements that Pastor Carlson had in his notes. Some of you may remember this point. And he said in Habakkuk, and especially thinking about Habakkuk the prophet himself, he said this, we see a man's personal struggle of living by faith in a fallen world and wrestling with God over what he is doing. Remember the questions that Pastor Carlson brought out that Habakkuk was asking? Even a believer, a godly man in his generation. Lord, why would you let this happen to your people, your chosen people, Israel? Why would you let this happen? He was a believer. He knew God, but he was troubled by what was going on around him. And then when God said, don't worry, I'm going to make this right. And I'm going to come in judgment. But remember what he was going to do. He was going to judge God's own people. That's how it was going to start. And not only that, add insult to injury, he was going to use the Babylonians to do it. People who you could argue were more wicked than the Jews because of their godlessness and their idolatry. And so Habakkuk is saying, why, Lord? How could you? And it just made me think of the, the problems that people face, even Christians. A woman wants a husband and she wonders, Lord, why are you not granting me a husband? Or a man, why aren't you granting me a wife? You've granted them to so many others of my friends. And I've been praying 
And I don't have some huge sin that I think stands out in my life that I that should keep me from getting what I'm asking for. Or a woman is pleading for a child like Hannah was. Lord, are you up there? Why is this happening to me? Or maybe the man who was pleading for a wife and pleading and pleading is granted a wife. And then years go by and he's enjoying life with his wife. And then his wife gets cancer or the wife's husband gets cancer. Lord, what are you doing? Or the woman gets a child and the child dies. Think of that woman that Elisha came to. And the, the Lord opened her womb through the prophet's presence and the prophet's prayers. And then the child had a headache one day and ended up dying. And the woman says, what did you do? Come here to mock me? Many, many difficulties in life, even for Christians. But brethren, God has given us the shoes of the gospel of peace. And if we have them on, peace is constantly flowing from them as peace is constantly given to us so that even in the times of trial Romans 5 3 that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God and not only that but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. In other words, the gospel brings such peace with it that if we have those shoes on and tied, peace is going to constantly come from them, brethren, so that even if we are in tribulations, Paul says it doesn't matter. We glory, we rejoice, we exult, even in the midst of those tribulations. I, I think of that hymn we sang for the Sunday school class this morning. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. Brethren, because we know the gospel, we know things Habakkuk didn't fully understand. We know them. It's just part of the gospel. And we know that peace comes from the gospel. And peace is the portion of the Christian who believes the gospel. And there was that one line in the hymn that I was thinking of uh, when I started talking about it a minute ago. And the one line was this. Um, the bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. In other words, the Christian so understands that God works good in our lives through trials and that God is close to us in our lives, especially when we go through trials. And we've seen it happen enough and we know that the Word says it, that when those bitter buds are given to us to chew on, we learn to stop trying to spit them out 
and we just keep chewing because we know how sweet will be the flower. And it's because we have the shoes of the gospel of peace. Think of how it worked with Job. God said in chapter 1, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. He brings me glory. I love watching him walk around. What do you think of him, Satan? Oh, Satan said, if you just take away all the blessings, he'll curse you to your face and he'll turn from you. So God says, go ahead. And Satan brings his worst on Job. And in chapter 2, we have a replay. God says, what do you think of Job, Satan? What do you think of my servant Job? And what was God saying there? So you gave him your worst, and now the aroma coming from Job is even sweeter in my nostrils. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Brethren, let's wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. Let's wear the breastplate of righteousness. Let's wear the belt of truth. Because they can stand against anything that Satan brings against us. And we'll look at the helmet of salvation next time and draw some more applications. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your truth. And we thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gospel by which we are saved. Thank you for this precious armor. Thank you for this mighty armor Help us to take it up, help us to keep it on, and help us to stand in the evil day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.